0: This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll free 877 924 7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed,
1: rightly handling the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible Line. So glad that you can be with us. Maybe you are a first time listener and you are listening through the internet or at 88.7 FM locally. And if you are, for the next hour, we will be taking questions that people have concerning God's Word, the application of it, a challenge maybe they have in their church ministry or family, and they're looking for biblical direction. If we can help by God's grace, we will look to Him and answer your questions. All you need to do is pick up the phone, again, locally. It's uh, 843-525-1859. The 843 exchange is 525-1859, or as many people do, you can just email us here directly into the studio. It's TBL, that stands for The Bible Line, tbl at net, and we'll get your email direct. Sometimes people uh, send us the questions and they're unable to listen because they are at work, and of course, this is always posted at WAGP. Uh, at our website and you can listen to the Bible line later on and it will show all the questions that were answered that day and you can kind of figure out which one is yours and where things are at. So Rick, um, we've had a number of questions already that have come in and um, we'll we'll give preferences
0: we always do to live callers, but let's go ahead and begin our time. Indeed, Uh, Pastor uh, William from Warwick, Rhode Island writes, my priest says that although Trump is not his favorite person, we still must vote for him because of the abortion issue. Is that correct? Well, that's kind of an interesting question. Um,
1: I I would say this, you know, you need to vote your conscience, and certainly your conscience is only as good as what guides it. People can have what we call an evil conscience, a seared conscience, a callous conscience. There's different terms used in the Bible. Uh, the, The height of a uh, 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 an evil conscience is it's been given over to what the Bible calls a depraved mind, where a person basically believes what what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right. Uh, the challenge in our day is not so much party affiliation as it is indeed uh, the issues that represent God's truth. And as Christians, I think our responsibility is to shine our light and to uh, use our salt as savor to preserve righteousness. And so, whichever party and whichever individual can best represent that. Here's the challenge in our day, and this again is not true of all Democrats any more than what I'm going to say in a moment is true of all Republicans. But for instance, in the Democratic platform today, they sanction the killing of innocent life. So, if someone is a Democrat, typically they are espousing to the platform. And if a person says, I am in favor of the murder of innocent little babies, that is wicked, that is depraved. I, as a Christian, could never vote for such an individual. Secondly, in the party platform of the Democratic Party, they're espousing LGBTQ+++, plus 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 however many letters now you want to put after it, uh, rights. That's an abomination to God. That's a wicked, wicked, wicked thing. And of course, in the uh, election prior, in the initial rough draft of the Democratic Party, they wanted to take God out of the equation. This was a first time move, and then they realized that that was not politically astute, and so they decided to keep God in the equation. So uh, that's very, very negative. Now, that's not to say that every Democrat espouses to the party line, but typically they do. And by the way, that's not to say that every Republican. Espouses to the Republican platform, they don't always. Uh, and again, you know, these labels can be done on a national level, on a state level. If you go up to the state house, for instance, in South Carolina, there are a number of Republicans who indeed um, are more democratic in their on the moral social issues than they are typically traditionally Republican. And that's, that's discouraging, obviously. You think, oh, Republican, you know, so we need to vote for him because he holds for good moral values. Um, you know, the Democrat Party was the party of slavery. They're the ones who opposed the civil rights movement. Now, today, they want to make themselves look like the good guy. But they were actually against the African-American people uh, during the time of the Civil War and right up until the time of LBJ, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, when he was the president of the United States. So you need to vote your conscience. Obviously, you know, Trump, you know, God only knows his heart. Some people think maybe he's come to faith. I don't know. But I do know certainly he represents the protection of life. Uh, He doesn't really—he takes a very loose view on the LGBTQ things, but he's not going against the party platform, and he's very pro-Israel. So, uh, again, you vote your conscience, but I, I could not vote, let's say, Governor of New York, you know, where he wants to, you know, kill little babies up until the day they're born, or the governor of Virginia, who wants to kill babies if they want the day they're born. How, how a Christian in clear conscience with a regenerate mind could affirm such a person is just beyond me. It's beyond right thinking. So it's not a matter of voting our pocketbooks or what we think is best for us. If a nation rejects God and his truth, uh, that nation is going to go down no matter what. Anyway, I hope that helps, gets you thinking a little bit. Uh, I appreciate your, your question, William, there from Rhode Island. Let's go to the
0: next one. alright two five one eight five nine. if you have a question for today's Bible line. And uh, Angie from Bluffton writes, um, what is the correct response to request by an interdenominational group for a dogma-free Bible study?
1: Well, again, you have to define terms here. What do we mean by dogma? But uh, typically, the term dogma just means a teaching. Sometimes, of course, there are dogmas that are espoused by particular groups or organizations that are not representative of biblical truth. So, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church has lists of dogmas that don't match up with Holy Scripture. But they say that because the church espouses them, that they must be affirmed. Likewise, now in Protestantism, you have uh, liberal left Protestants who are advocating, you know, certain really wicked things. Uh, what m- caught my attention over the weekend is there was a group of United Methodists. Um, young people in Omaha, Nebraska, who were supposed to be confirmed, and I guess in the Methodist Church, confirmation is kind of the official launching step, so to speak, when you make your commitment to Christ, and they refused to be confirmed because they said that there was so much ambiguity in the United Methodist Church over... Uh, LGBTQ people, and because they wanted to affirm LGBTQ people as an alternative lifestyle, they refused to be confirmed. And of course, it was kind of a shocker that Sunday morning in the church that all these young people all of a sudden did not want to be confirmed. But what, what does that tell you? It, it tells you, well, that's, a, uh, that's a, a teaching, a truth that is less than representative of God's Word so it, it, it's really kind of silly to say a dogma free study Bible. It just reflects ignorance. The question is what kind of dogma is the dogma? The word comes from a Latin word that means teaching and so you know the Bible uh, translates it as teaching or as doctrine. You could say a doctrine free Bible study that's stupid. Uh, every group, every person represents doctrine, even the atheist has a doctrine. He has a theology of God. His theology is that there is no God. Even the agnostic has a, a doctrine, a, a teaching about God. He says he doesn't know if there's a God. So, uh, uh, you know, I will say that sometimes this term can be used on secondary and tritiary issues uh, where people differ, but they're not tests of orthodoxy. So when we're speaking here about things that you must believe, to be a Christian, you must believe in the deity of Jesus in the doctrine of the Trinity and the substitutionary atonement and the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Bible and the physical resurrection of Christ and the physical bodily return of Christ and so on. Those are non-negotiables. Every true born-again Christian believes those. And now what we're seeing happen, like, for instance, there's a young lady who lost her life, Rachel Helb Evans, who made a lot of stink and and really did an incredible amount of damage to a younger generation where people said, well, I feel free to come out as bisexual now because of Rachel Held Evans and her teachings and that I can be a good Christian bisexual. No, that's evil. That's wrong. That does not reflect biblical doctrine. And so you've got now this whole new movement where people do not want to take a stance. They don't want to take a position even on certain moral issues because they think it divides. Well, yes, dogmas, doctrines, teachings do divide. They divide truth from error. They divide right from wrong. And so some 45 times in the New Testament, we are instructed as pastors to teach sound doctrine. For God to say it that many times, it's pretty important. So to say a dogma-free Bible study is just sheer ignorance. It doesn't reflect any even elementary understanding of what the new testament says concerning a teaching a dogma a doctrine etc
0: in that context you've used the expression i don't want to be dogmatic about something or i want uh, this is dogmatic and so that means that you know there is no ifs and or buts about it and really yeah, so there
1: are there are some issues rick where the bible doesn't directly speak and so um, if someone makes a dogma over an issue the Bible doesn't speak so I might say well you know I think this I think maybe the the war of Gog and Magog someone might say will happen before the rapture someone else might say well I think it could happen between the rapture and the signing of the peace covenant or someone else might say I think it will happen right at the beginning of the tribulation we do know after the war of Gog and Magog is completed they will spend seven years uh, burning their Um, weapons of war, and that it's a very short war because God miraculously intervenes. It could happen before the rapture. This coalition of countries, uh, Russia included, they're named countries that will go against Israel. The Bible prophesies that. It could happen, and maybe more likely, between the rapture of the church and the signing of the peace covenant, or it could happen right at the beginning of the tribulation. Uh, which would, of course, make a a, a favorable ground for the Antichrist to come. But since the Bible doesn't pinpoint exactly, uh, precisely, it has to happen in this day at this moment— I wouldn't be dogmatic over it, but I would be dogmatic over the fact that the battle of Gog and Magog is going to happen before the second coming of Jesus and approximately seven years before the second coming of Jesus. That I can be dogmatic on because that much is revealed in Scripture. Now, there are other issues where people would say, well, you don't need to be dogmatic. Take baptism, for instance. Um, the majority of evangelical born-again Christians worldwide, approximately 90%, missiologists tell us, believe in what we call post-conversion baptism. We often refer to it as believer's baptism. Only about 10%, uh, some would put it lower than that, but I'm being generous here, 10% believe in what we call infant baptism, and they take different views on it. Now, I'm talking about born-again Christians. I'm not talking about infant baptism as it relates to Roman Catholics, that deny justification by grace alone, through faith alone. But amongst those who are born again, who believe that salvation is only through the cross, the death, burial, and the resurrection, about 10% hold to infant baptism. Now, someone might say, well, Pastor Carl, you're dogmatic for teaching post-conversion baptism. Well, listen, you've got to teach something, because part of the Great Commission is As you go, go therefore, make disciples, converts of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've taught you to observe. And so part of the Great Commission is to baptize. So you have to take a position. And both infant baptism and post-conversion baptism cannot be correct. Someone's right, someone's wrong. So you have to take a position. You cannot just be out there and do nothing, or you will disobey the great commandment, uh, the great commission that Jesus gave to us. So. Mm.
0: Yeah, and you've often quoted uh, the the terminology that if you, uh, uh, if you don't take a stand on something, you'll fall for anything.
1: That's true. That's true. And there are some non-negotiables. You know, we don't have to wonder whether or not, Heterosexual immorality is okay. So, you know, um, Rachel Held Evans was supposed to speak, I think, in another week or two, you know, on this platform with two men who are married to each other. They're sharing the platform now with a Lutheran woman who divorced her husband, who uh, talks about her many sexual relationships and this so-called evangelical she called herself an evangelical christian she went to Bryan college Her, her dad was a professor there and i'm very sad very very sad for that family and for those two children who are left behind by this you know i think she was 37 or 38 years old but you know look she was teaching evil evil beyond evil And yet she was trying to persuade all these so-called evangelicals. So I don't have to wonder whether or not uh, that—whether homosexuality and uh, extramarital, heterosexuality are moral or immoral. If you have the mind of Christ and you're regenerate, you recognize it. If you don't have the mind of Christ and you're debating it, uh, you know, I get it. Because you you don't have eyes to see the kingdom of God, much less to enter it.
0: All right. Uh, The next person that we uh, have did not leave their name, but they write, I know that Africans or African-Americans are not the true Hebrews. However, my church is wanting to move in that direction. Can you help me to articulate better why that ideology is wrong? Well, um, it's a very dangerous
1: ideology. Uh, Mm -hmm. This whole movement called um, black Hebrews or black Israelites – um, they they refer to themselves sometimes as the Hebrew Israelite nation, and they believe, in short, that the Roman expulsion of the Jews from the land that really took place in two phases in 70 A.D. when Titus Vespucian came down and uh, decimated the city, and then the few that were left in the final Bar rebellion that took place between 130 135 when the rest were expelled. Um, They argue that their descendants were transported by slave ship to the United States um, and, and that this group that came into existence in the 1960s were the true Israelites. And so, for instance, the black Hebrew Israelites, they deny that Jewish people who call themselves Jews are indeed Jews. In fact, they typically refer to them as white infidels, though they're not typically white. Uh, Jewish people tend to be, um, you know, more all of color in their skin. Uh, But they can be white. But for that matter, they can be black. There are Ethiopian Jews that descend from Solomon's, some of his wives, and uh, they are true Jewish people. But these uh, black Hebrew Israelites say that only blacks are true Jews, number one. And then they go on to say that not all Uh, black people are Hebrew Israelites. Um, So they don't align themselves even with Judaism as it's represented in the Bible. They're typically a wide range of holiness, Pentecostal. They're sometimes bled in from the British Anglo-Israelite movement. Some come out of Freemasonry, just a lot of different things. Some are deeply involved in the occult. When um, they, a number of them wanted to get recognition by the Israeli government as true Jews. And the Israeli government, for instance, acknowledged that these people who are black Ethiopians are true Jews. They would not recognize this group because there was really nothing Jewish about them. Uh, but they wanted to come to Israel, and if you come to Israel as a true Jewish person and you're recognized by the government, they do everything they can to get you a place to live and a home and everything, and the government would not recognize them. But they took a verse out of Deuteronomy twenty-eight, sixty-eight, way out of context. It has nothing to do with uh, American slavery and people being transported. But um, when we speak of the bl- um, black Hebrew Israelites, you have to realize it's kind of like within evangelical Christians. There are different stripes. There's Presbyterians, there's Methodists, there's Baptists, there's you know, non-denominationalists and so forth. Well, there's about five or six major black Hebrew Israelite groups, Uh, but as a general rule, uh, they all deny the deity of Christ. They all deny the doctrine of the Trinity, and those usually go hand in hand. Uh, They usually are people of special revelation where God is speaking directly to them, and so— you know, now they therefore have God's will for your life and the inner hand and this direct revelation from heaven. So it's very, very, very dangerous. Not to mention, you know, a lot of African Americans in our country are embarrassed by this group because there is such an intense hatred towards white people. And so if your church is moving in that direction, I would get out of that church. You're wasting your time there. You're sitting under a leader who is a false teacher Who is unregenerate? Why would a true teacher want to align himself with a group that denies the doctrine of the Trinity, that denies the deity of Christ, that denies salvation by grace and
0: other things? So,
1: anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one.
0: All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call this morning. I was really encouraged to hear that the governor of Georgia uh, signed uh, some really great pro life legislation, and I'm wondering, here in South Carolina, I live in Beaufort, what are some things that we could do practically to support um, pro-life organizations in addition to praying? I don't know of any in the Beaufort or Bluffton area, um, but are there places that we could support financially or or in a volunteer basis um, in addition to our prayers that would really help uh, yes. keep, um, saving life?
1: Absolutely. Hey, thank you. Uh, well, on, on a very, very local level here in Beaufort, of course, there's the Crisis Pregnancy Center. Rick, you served there for a number of years. I did.
0: We call it the Radiance uh, Pregnancy Resource Center now. Their phone number is 843 Okay, and uh, that, that ministry was originally started by Community Bible Church. And
1: uh, right before I came as the pastor, they said, look, we want to uh, bridge it from Community Bible Church and just open it up to Christians in general. Uh, And so other churches have since been involved. I served on the board for a couple of years, used to train the people to do personal evangelism so that when someone came into the center for a pregnancy test, free pregnancy test, that's kind of the carrot. And uh, often, of course, that would lead into a counseling uh, experience where the woman could be convinced to keep the baby. Uh, Through the generosity of a, a, a woman actually in the state of Georgia um, the count, the whole center is paid for, they have their own facility. Tell us about the ultrasound, Rick. Yeah, they've got a
0: uh, ultrasound machine there. That was, uh, again, acquired through various contributions. And uh, I also wanted to mention that on the south side of Beaufort County is the Pregnancy uh, Center uh, of Hitland. Right, it's the Pregnancy Center, uh, and <laughs> I'm drawing a blank, but uh, they also have a, a pregnancy resource has
1: run that thing for years and years and, uh, yeah, yeah
0: that's uh they're currently looking for a new executive director. that's what i heard
1: mm-hmm. that's what i heard so so there's some immediate local things on a broader level of course the house passed in south carolina a bill for that was pro-life it now has to go to the senate and because the way south carolina is um organized if uh, bills work in a two-year cycle and of course the uh, Senate and House uh, just meet from January through the end of May. So they're getting ready to close off this uh, session. But they approve the House, the fetal heartbeat bill that will ban most abortions in the state. And one of their motivations, of course, for wanting to do this is to make it a uh, Supreme Court issue. Uh, and there is actually an, a handful of states that have already successfully passed it. It will be very difficult to pass it in the uh, Senate of South Carolina. And um, with that said, you need to have your voice heard. You know, the, the problem is, is that no one calls and no one knows what's going on. So for you to be able to stay in touch, I would suggest that you um, ask to be on the mailing of what's called Pometto Family. Uh, Pometto Family is basically an arm that was started by James Dobson. He started on a state level um, organizations that were uh, not 501c3 where you cannot engage officially in certain realms in a political realm. But the P- Palmetto Family Council was – and if you go to PalmettoFamily, uh, .org. Com- org, you can get on their email list. And so I get regular emails from them. In fact, I'm a part of a network called the Nehemiah Network, which is right now a network of slightly over 400 pastors. I was the very first pastor on the network. In fact, I encouraged a young man, Eric Corcoran, who's the head of it. He was involved in a political campaign, and his uh, man that he was working for didn't make the presidential nominee. Uh, And so he said, what do I do next? And I said, well, look, one thing that you did do is you organized evangelical pastors across the state. To get engaged in some of these moral social issues, I said, you should go to Palmetto Family Council and maybe present the same kind of structure in an ongoing way. And he ended up doing that. He had never even heard of the organization. And so now he has over 400 pastors. And we, in fact, we met this morning at 8.30, pastors from across the state, every Tuesday morning at 8.30, between 8.30 and 9. We pray together for issues. And we were praying this morning over this bill, giving thanks that the House bill was passed. It's going to be very difficult to pass it in the Senate, but not impossible. You see, again, no one ever says anything. They have no idea what is going on up there in Columbia. And so, like, for instance, last week there was a bill that had been passed by the Senate, which was most difficult to get through in this state, um, and it needed to go through committee to get out on the floor of the House. uh, And it was a bill that basically said we need to have the law that's already on the books enforced that requires every college student to take a course on the Constitution, the Federalist Papers and the Declaration of Independence. And this is a real need because, you know, Millennials, Generation X, Generation Z, more and more of them, the younger you get, are socialists and they don't even know what our country is founded on and it's no longer taught and you give that enough time and the freedoms that we enjoy that are God-given freedoms, but we enjoy them under the umbrella of the Constitution of the United States. Given enough time, the Constitution will be changed. That has lasted this long is an incredible miracle, so to speak. But there is a movement in our country that really wants to change that. But again, what needs to happen? Phone calls. So if you get on their mailing list, when there's a bill, they'll notify you. You type in your zip code, And then it shows you who your representatives are, either in the House or in the Senate. We've got a local senator here who's pushing dope all the time on the floor of um, the House, uh, the floor of the Senate there in South Carolina. You know, and again, you know, Edmund Burke used to say, all it takes for evil to prosper is for good men to do nothing. That's a biblical principle. We're supposed to let our light shine, and we, we need good, godly people to reflect biblical principles in the governmental realm. So that would be like the premier organization in the state that would keep you informed so that when there is a bill of of, of moral concern for the believer, whether it's protecting, you know, children from transgender bathrooms or whatever it might be, um, that your voice can be heard and you know how to come. But most people don't know who their senator is in South Carolina. They don't know who their representative is in their particular district. Again, if you're on that mailing list, you'll know who to call and you do it in a godly way. You don't attack them, but you know, my Senator uh, some years back was opposing this pro-life bill in the Senate and he had stopped it many times because he was the committee head. He was a pastor, so to speak, in Charleston. I spent 25 minutes on the phone with him one day, pleading with him and I said you you claim to be a pastor I said your secretary didn't even know that you've opposed this bill I said that's dishonest and I said and it's taken me forever to contact you but I I appreciate the fact that you would at least listen to me and I said how can you support the murder of little babies in the womb of course it wasn't two three weeks later he lost his life it was tragic it was sad But I think among other things, God was having me to reach out with him to plea. And I said, look, you know, if you're born again and you have the mind of Christ, how can you dogmatically oppose protecting life in the womb? Um, So, again, we need to have our voice heard. And like, for instance, there was an issue up in North Charleston. Now, I don't live in North Charleston, but they were going to institute uh, a gambling casino there. And I called every single person on the city council just while I was in my car over the course of a couple days. And I either spoke with them directly or I left voicemails. And some of them said, oh, this is no different from bingo. And I said, no, let me explain to you how it's different from bingo. And it just took a few voices to express your moral concern, and it failed. And they didn't have that casino instituted up there in North Charleston. so these are important things and the question you ask is premier and very important. I mm. appreciate it.
0: Yeah, my wife uh, just texted me that the information for the southern part of Beaufort County, the pregnancy resource center there is the Pregnancy Center and Clinic of the Lowcountry. They've got uh, a phone number 843-689-2222 and they also have uh, the Stork Mobile so that okay. they have ultrasounds that they can do all over Jasper County and yeah, parts of Beaufort County. So they are, you know, you they have these
1: little ultrasound machines. I, I'm on a board of a Christian organization and they needed a couple for Amazing. the Ukraine and they literally hold in your hand
0: 4 dimensional yeah, ultrasound.
1: Yeah. And it's uh, it, it's it's pretty sophisticated in terms of what you can do now to protect the murder of the unborn. You know, we talk about 60 million Americans that are missing. There's 600 million mm-hmm. people worldwide, but largely led through the initiative of the United States government, we lead often in evil, and other countries around the world adopt our, our, our plan of attack.
0: Mm. All right, 843-525-1859. if you have a question on today's Bible line, Timothy writes, God told Abraham that whoever cursed him or the Jews would be cursed, and Jesus said that people would say to him that they did miracles in his name, and Jesus will tell them he never knew them. I was listening to your teaching on being saved, and I have this question uh, regarding your opinion about Martin Martin Luther, who uh, uh, not preached against Jesus, but said evil things about the Jewish people. Would, in your opinion, would you consider Luther saved or cursed? Both. (laughs) Well,
1: it's a really great question, and it's uh, a thorny question, and it's created a lot of Controversy. Obviously, Martin Luther has said some things about the Jewish people that it's just absolutely appalling. And if you go to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust memorial in Jerusalem, uh, the very first site that you go to, uh, they have Augustine, who's being quoted. He said wicked things about the Jews, as did John Calvin, as did Martin Luther. And I've read those direct quotes in some sermons, even here in the Revelation. And, of course, uh, you know, the, the perspective that guys like Luther took is he said, well, the Jews, you know, murdered Christ, and, and they rejected the Messiah, so they should be viewed as a despised people. Well, even that statement is inaccurate. It is true he came to his own, and his own received him not. But not all the Jews rejected Jesus. Acts 1 through 7, everyone that is converted is Jewish, the first Samaritans, who are half Jews and half Gentiles doesn't happen until Acts eight and then the first Gentiles in acts ten, but not all Jews rejected Jesus, but overall as a nation, they initially did, but God has always had his remnant just as He did in elijah's day, and God has believing Jews in America alone there's an estimated two hundred thousand Jews for Jesus, so to speak, who uh recognize Jesus as the Messiah uh, when you go to Jerusalem, if you know where to look, there's uh, basically a dozen uh, born-again fellowships of Jewish believers. We support a Jewish pastor. He's one of our 300 missionaries plus that our church invests with, and he's in the southern part of Israel, and he is reaching Jews for the gospel, as well as Gentiles and Arabs, and it's really quite a congregation when you go in, because you see Arabs and Jews worshiping together and loving each other as brothers in Christ. But Luther said some really dumb things, and I'm sure he knows better now. Um, You know, I don't want to say he's not a believer, and some Christians have come to that conclusion that he was an unbeliever. But I think he said some very bad things about the Jewish people, and I'm sure there were consequences. Look, there's consequences for the things that we do and say, and sometimes God ends a life early. Uh, I think Luther was uh, 53 uh, or 52, almost 53 when he died. And, you know, that was, um, that's rather young, so to speak. And maybe the Lord took him by divine discipline. I don't know. I'm not his judge. But I can say, based on what the Scripture says, that the text you're referencing in Genesis 15 and the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, it's re- repeated through Genesis, are very serious. And we should not dismiss them. And so there's a growing anti-Semitic movement uh, worldwide and not just, uh, of course, um, in the European, Western Europe, but also here in the United States. The boycott, divest, um, you know, movement where we want to in no way support Jewish people and their products and, you know, that, that's just a form of anti-Semitism. And it's very popular right now in the uh, college campuses across America. So there's a new generation that's being raised up that is really anti-Jew. But, of course, the Scripture predicts that at the end of time, God will indeed use the Jewish people to evangelize the rest of the world. When Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 that this gospel of the kingdom shall go out to the whole world and then the end shall come, that is prophetically speaking, contextually speaking, It's going to happen in the final seven years, in the final time frame uh, before Jesus' second coming to the earth, and he's going to do it through 144,000 Jews who are converted, through two witnesses, who I believe happen to be Elijah and Moses. The Bible, of course, teaches the second coming of Elijah, that Elijah is going to come again before Jesus comes back, and it appears to me that those are the two witnesses, but whoever they are, they're Jewish. And not to mention, God will have an angel flying in the sky. God doesn't preach the gospel today through angels, but he will at that time frame. And the Lord will use these things to bring the gospel to the whole world, not to mention those who are converted will in turn share the gospel. And people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be converted. Right now, for the most part, Gentiles are preaching the gospel. In the coming tribulation, Jews will. But there is a whole movement in our nation. It's called, in terms of... um, end times doctrine, what we call eschatology, amillennialism. And amillennialism says that God has no future for Israel. It came from Augustine. It was really highlighted in Roman Catholicism. And some of the guys who came out of the Roman Catholic Church, like Luther and Calvin, they just put a different spin on it. But they say there's no future for the Jews, that the church is the new Israel. That's not true. And unfortunately, it is that doctrine, what we call replacement theology, that is, um, if anything, it's just feeding the whole anti-Semitic movement. So what Luther said was wrong. I make no apology for him. I kind of have a love-hate relationship with Luther. I'm glad he he preached justification by grace alone through faith alone and was willing to stand up for that truth at the expense of his own life if necessary. Uh, But he was wrong, 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 as was John Calvin, who people like to quote all the time. But they never quote some of the things that he said in one of his French works about the Jewish people. But you can hear those uh, in some of my messages on the Revelation. So
0: within the context of Timothy's question, there's no doubt that uh, Martin Luther was saved.
1: Well, you know, again, I'm not his judge, and I don't take the position that some evangelicals do that he was a lost man, that he had a form of Christianity. That's a minority view. I do take the position that he was converted, that you'll meet him in heaven. But I'm sure when he got to heaven, he realized these, and I'm sure there'll be some things I'll, when I meet the Lord and I stand at the judgment seat of Christ, you know, uh, I I will say, Lord, I just wish I saw that differently. Um, So none of us are infallible, but uh, what Luther did was bad, was really, really bad. When he says, you know, destroy Jewish homes, burn them to the ground. Uh, you know, destroy their places of worship and on and on and on. Just some horrible, horrendous things, you know. Even if you, you know, even if you thought some of the things that he thought that the church, the body of Christ had replaced Israel, still you would want to have compassion for the Jews that are living centuries later, 15 centuries later, and to try to win them to Jesus. Because the command is to go to the Jew first. And then to the Gentile, we're still supposed to try to reach Jewish people for Christ, and we shouldn't assume that all of them are going to be negative, um, because they're not. God always has his people. So.
0: so we actually just got a follow-up call from a listener who wants to know within this whole question, could Martin Luther, given his beliefs, be an elder today?
1: Um, you know,
0: he wouldn't be an elder in the church I pastor, I can tell you
1: that. Uh, I, I would not want a man— who said the things that Luther said to be an elder in my church. Um, and I, again, you know, um, all things being equal, you know, he, he was certainly right doctrinally on a lot of truth, but he was wrong doctrinally on other truths. And the qualification for an elder is he must be sound in doctrine. And some, of course, would argue that, well, he was sound on all the essentials, and I would pretty much agree with him. I mean, I don't agree with his view on baptism. Uh, Martin Luther said that you were born again in the waters of baptism. I don't think so. He taught what was called prevenient grace, that when you were baptized, that because you're dead in your trespasses and sins, that your baptism brought about a second birth that later enabled you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, Luther, to his credit, he quoted the verse on circumcision at the end of Romans chapter 2. And he says, Your uh, baptism has become unbaptism if you end up rejecting Jesus and not believing on him. But I don't see baptism the way he did in terms of uh, some means of you know, giving a person grace that they might come to salvation. I don't see that at all. I I see it as an ordinance. In fact, typically when someone speaks of a sacrament, they're already on shaky ground because they are somehow saying that these sacraments, and of course amongst evangelicals we see just two, unlike Roman Catholics that see seven, um, we would argue that they are not in any way instilling grace other than any other expression of obedience. When you humble yourself and you obey God, you experience his grace. But, but they're not in some way some unique, special thing where grace is inferred uh, to the believer. So, you know, Luther was wrong on a lot of things. Um, but I'm grateful that he brought, at least into the Roman Church, they were called Protestants. Why? Because they were protesting Roman Catholic doctrine. Uh, So there were, of course, apart from Luther, we give these reformers all the press, but just remember, don't ever forget, God has always had his church, and there were people who were never members of the Roman Catholic Church. They had nothing to protest because they weren't in that church trying to reform it and protesting against it. They were never a part of it because they saw the heresy from day one. Um, so that's important to keep in mind as well.
0: alright two five one eight five nine. if you have a question on today's Bible line, and our next listener would like to know, how does one determine if a pastor or someone in the congregation is truly giving a word of knowledge? How do we know if it's truly from God? Well, that's a great question. Um, there are four central
1: passages in the Bible that deal with the subject of spiritual gifts. I always remember them, 2-4s, 2, 4s, 2 12s. There's Ephesians 4, there's 1 Peter 4, there's Romans 12, and there's 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. And amongst the 20 spiritual gifts that are listed, there are two in particular, one called a word of knowledge and the other called a word of wisdom. And so they're mentioned, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and unfortunately today there's a lot of confusion as to exactly what these two gifts are. Um, maybe the best way I could answer your question is to talk about what they aren't. Now, if you're typically in the Pentecostal denomination, and I don't want to broad brush every Pentecostal church because there's always exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, Pentecostals view the Word of Knowledge, the Word of Wisdom as the Holy Spirit-speaking from one believer to another, giving direct revelation, maybe concerning a situation. And so some who use this gift would say, well, I have a I have a word from God for you. And then in doing so, they claim basically to be speaking on God's behalf, and they claim that their word should be obeyed. Um, there's huge problems with that. Number one, it denies the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, God's word is sufficient. And Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1 that, Everything that we need for life and godliness has been given to us. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed, and it allows you to be equipped, 2 Timothy 3.17 says, for every good work. So we don't require, at this time in human history, outside special revelation from God. Certainly there was a time in the history of the church when There was revelation, direct revelation that was being given. And so, for instance, take prophecy. There was a predictive sense and there was a foretelling sense. And so even in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about prophets and he speaks about the fact that let everything be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses and the spirits of prophets were subject to other prophets. What was happening? Um, God, because he had not completed the Bible yet, was still giving revelation, and he gave it directly. But even that had to be tested, and we needed to test the spirits to see whether or not they be of God. So if the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge are not prophetic, revelatory gifts today, then what really are they? Well, we know one thing for sure, that any spiritual gift that is given is for the building up, for the edification of the body, for what Paul calls the common good. And the havoc that so often ensues in the day that we have where someone claims they have a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom, and those are two distinct gifts, Uh, wisdom, among other things, is the ability to take God's truth and to apply it to a given life situation. Uh, That's the theme of wisdom in Proverbs. It's taking biblical truth and putting it in in shoe leather. Um, And so... um, If you think about it, today in these churches where these so-called gifts are used, there's often confusion, there's contradictory words from God. One person says, well, no, God told me this about you, and someone else says, no, God told me this about you. Well, listen, God is a God of order, and He is not one who creates division through the expression of spiritual gifts. But often the word of knowledge or the word of wisdom gifts are, you know, they're they're controlling gifts today. People want to be a big shot. Let me tell you what God said. Or sometimes, you know, and this is where, you know, this Jesus Calling book is so dangerous, and her theology is just lousy. And if you're not sure what I'm referring to, you might want to go to searchthescriptures.org. And I wrote an article some years ago, and all I did was... All I did was review initially the introduction, and it was just like so disconcerting, even the introduction. And now they've removed the introduction from the book. But I analyzed the introduction word by word, and that, for whatever reason, I'm told is all over the internet in a number of different circles. Um, But all I did was an analysis of it. But it's this whole idea that, you know, God speaks directly to me apart from his word. And people today, sometimes they're pastors, sometimes they're leaders in the church, and they they have these direct revelations to gain power and influence over the people um, that they're trying to gain power and influence over, and so that makes others dependent on the person who claims to have this gift. And that's a gross misuse of what we find in Scripture. So the fact that this gift, say the Word of Wisdom, is described as a word of wisdom tells you right off it's a speaking gift. But... Today, it would not be revelatory in any sense, but it would be someone who has the ability to take God's Word and apply it to life. The Word of Knowledge, again, a Word of Knowledge also tells you it's a speaking gift. And that expression really is someone almost with an encyclopedic knowledge of Scripture in a given area, and they're able to systematically organize God's truth. Um, I, I have a friend with the Word of Wisdom, and so sometimes on occasion, he has a gift of wisdom. I will talk to him and get his take. Hey, what do you think about this? And he'll often be able to very succinctly express. Now, all Christians are to show wisdom, but some people have the gift of wisdom. And John Walford was someone with the word of knowledge, and he just had a um, systematic way of thinking through all the major doctrines of the Bible, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, where he just did a marvelous job of organizing truth that would then in turn be used by people with the gift of teacher or pastor-teacher to, to teach sound doctrine. Anyway, that's a great question, and I appreciate it. Let's go on to the next one.
0: Somebody did call and ask if you would please repeat the Scriptures uh, where the word of knowledge is addressed. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12,
1: verse 8. So, yeah, you can start 1 Corinthians 12. That's where you'll find that.
0: All right. Christopher from Beaufort writes... I have a question about your spirit-led view of Bible translations. I was raised from a child studying the King James Version. As my hunger for wisdom of the Word continues to grow, I've also, over the past couple of years, begun to study the New King James by John MacArthur's uh, version and the NASB, the Hebrew-Greek Dictionary versions. They are both, in my opinion, pretty good Bibles, but I think I'm looking for something that is filled with historical, cultural information from the times that we read about in the Bible. I cherish my MacArthur Bible for its accuracy and pointedness toward Christ throughout the entire Bible. However, my KJV Bible by Finnis Dake has a great deal of historical information as well. The problem is I've come to question some of the footnotes in the Dake KJV Bible. Brief example, in regards to Matthew chapter 25's parable of the talents, the Dake Bible notes equate a talent to a specific dollar amount, while my MacArthur New King James describes a talent as a weight. I just want to ensure that the tools I have contain accurate information on Christology and theology. Also, are there any Bible versions that you would advise believers to avoid? I have looked through my Search the Scriptures website at the Bible recommendations, and I didn't see any NIV Bibles listed. Is there any particular reason why? My apologies for the slew of questions and concerns here. I know you most likely have several other questions to answer.
1: Well, one, I would direct you to a course I taught that is available at searchthescriptures.org. And by the way, there's apps that you can download on your phone. So as you're driving for some long trip or you're working and you're able to listen to Bible teaching, you could listen to that course in Bibliology. And there's one section where I deal with an evaluation of English Bibles. And I go through really the history of the English Bible, how we and got the Bible that we have today, and I even do a, an analysis of the English Bibles that are available. Obviously, the main translations we have a unique, um, really, opportunity uh, that no one else in the world has. There's actually over 200 some English translations, but most of us know at least things like the King James, the New King James, the NIV, the ESV, the RSV, the New RSV, the NAS and so forth, the HCSV, the Net Bible, and so forth. Those are some major English translations. So obviously, I don't evaluate 200, but I deal with all the major English translations and where they're coming from and things like that. Obviously, when you look at translations, first recognize that there are a variety of kinds of translations. There's what we would call a paraphrase translation, That would be represented by, like, J.B. Phillips' translation of the Bible that was done in England in the 1950s, later on here in the States, the Living Bible, now the New Living Translation. Um, You have uh, the Good News for Modern Man, Contemporary English Version. Those are all paraphrased versions of the Bible. The, the, The challenge with the paraphrase is what you're really getting is a commentary on the Bible, in other words, someone reads a verse, and then they're trying to say, well, this is what I think the verse means, and so then they write it down as they uh, think it means. And usually, paraphrase translations, typically a translation is done by one person versus what we call a version. We speak of the King James Version, the New American Standard Version. Um, a version is done by a, a large group of biblical scholars that together work on uh, giving us a translation from the original tongues of the Scripture, Hebrew, Greek, few chapters, few verses in the New Testament in Aramaic, few chapters in the Old Testament, few verses in the New Testament. And you put it into the receptor tongue. Uh, the King James was uh, certainly a commonly used Bible in uh, early America. Initially, it was the Bishop's Bible, but then it the, became harder and harder to understand because the English language was changing so fast, and then people adopted the King James Version. And as time went on, there's a number of words that are very archaic, we don't use, but but they are what you would call not a paraphrase, but a dyna- dynamic equivalent translation. So amongst... Um, translations today, apart from a paraphrase, are either fluid equivalent or a dynamic equivalent. A fluid equivalent kind of uh, uses uh, 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 as much as they can a word-for-word, but they do paraphrase and they do some interpretive moves. So um, ideally what you want is a modern literal translation that is committed first to literalness and second readability. So like if you're using the NIV 84, which was the first uh, NIV translation that came out, um, sometimes they will interpret for you pronouns. So it speaks of he, and the he, if you figure it out in Romans 8, oh, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So instead of saying he, which is what God inspired, they say the Spirit. Well, that's the, the, they've supplied an interpretive paraphrase for you uh, rather than letting you figure out who the pronoun belongs to. So they do that a lot, and then more recently the TNIV has been blended with the old NIV, and they've changed a lot of personal pronouns to plural pronouns to be a little more politically correct so as not to be offensive with a maleness in the Bible, and that's not good. That's not good. Um, you know, the Dakes Study Bible, it was uh, it was okay. Um, they're both right. In fact, John MacArthur would teach not only was it a weight, it was a value of money. So it is a talent is not like we speak of a talent, like he's talented, Uh, to be able to sing. A talent, biblically, was a weight measure, but it was typically a weight measure of silver or gold. So it represented both a weight, but a monetary weight that was used in common everyday trade. But uh, again, I would suggest you go to my course on bibliology, and you listen to, I think it's section six, where we deal with English translations of the Bible, and that will just like walk you through all the whole things about study Bibles, Uh, where to go, um, pros and cons of different ones, and I think that would get you started. Well, another hour has fled away here at Search the Scriptures and the Bible line, and we're glad that you could join us today. Again, it will be posted online in a few hours if you want to send it to a friend. Thank you for joining us. God bless you as you walk with Christ.